Gateway, good day to you. I'm Kyle, I'm one of the pastors here. Such a pleasure to be with you as we're kind of on the tail end of summer. Can you believe it? This is the summer of COVID and here we find ourselves. Uh, if you're here with us for the first time or the first time in a long time, welcome. Uh, by way of reminder or perhaps introduction, we've been on this slow roll through the gospel according to Mark with this explicit desire in hand to keep Jesus of Nazareth front and center in our minds, in our hearts, in our imaginations. See, there's this little axiom that's been helpful for me in my life with Jesus is that we cannot be formed into anything we don't have a vision for. And so week after week, we've sat ourselves at the feet of our rabbi Jesus to be formed by him. And here we find ourselves yet again, <laughs> sitting at the feet of Jesus to learn from him, to be formed into a community that lives and loves into the way of Jesus. And so as we come to our teaching text today, which just to warn you is a bit of a doozy, uh, you know, chopping off of limbs, hell, normal Bible stuff. Uh, I just want us to have these words from commenter Henry Sweet in mind. He, he says this about the gospel according to Mark. The briefest of the gospels is in some respects the fullest and most exacting. The simplest of the books of the New Testament brings us nearest the feet of the master. And so if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 9. Uh, we're going to pick up from where we left off in verse 42. And I, I hope that these words of Jesus, that they do as we work our way through them, draw you near to him. But without further ado, Mark 9, starting in verse 42, this is what we read. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We are just getting going, folks. Then if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Welcome to the Gateway Church. <laughs> I hope that you feel the warmth of Jesus's affection drawing you near to him. I suppose a little qualifier is necessary at this point. These words from Jesus are for his followers. For those of us who've given our whole person trust to him, our allegiance. And I just I remind us of that right off the bat because it's a good chance that passages like this one make you feel a little funny. They're like oil to your water, they just don't mix. And Jesus's words do the exact opposite thing of drawing you near. They uh, drive you away from Jesus. They make you and your roommate and your coworker very, very nervous. 
and for obvious reasons. I mean, you have hands and feet and eyes, good and useful parts of our bodies being cast aside if they stand in the way of our allegiance to Jesus. And this is a good thing? Well, yes. You see, Jesus is fully aware that we are social creatures. Women and men created in the image of the Trinitarian community of love that we call God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The scriptures elsewhere will say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He gets this stuff. He knows who we are, that we were created to live into and out of a deep and abiding community. And not just any community, a community marked by peace and justice. And I think that this is one of the few reasons why these past months and this lingering sense of social isolation have been so challenging. Now, I know for a number in our of people in our community, you're introverted at your core, and even for you, this is challenging. Extroverts like myself, we either just buck the system and call this thing a hoax, or we lean in and we just, we feel deeply grieved by this season. For everyone, this is challenging because we're created to be woven together into a fabric, a, a rich tapestry of community. And on top of all of these things, and you know, this already tense moment, we are surrounded by soul grieving divisions in our nation that grow deeper still by the moment and the tweet. So we feel this interpersonally, maybe amongst your families or friends and intrapersonally, we feel it within ourselves. There's this confusion and cynicism and apathy even. And many there's, have this vague sense that how things are, like the state of the world, ought not be so. And that impulse, that impulse is correct. In the Christian and Jewish traditions, this division and disorder is named, and it's, it's called sin. And in our origin story in Genesis chapter 3, we see how this division plays itself out. It plays itself out vertically with the Creator God and horizontally with one another. There's a fracture between Adam and Eve in this horizontal relationship. And now, these are not proper names, so that's why we don't encounter other Adams and Eves in the Old Testament. They're Hebrew words, Adam and Eve, Adam, humanity, and Eve, life. And when humanity and life experience this invasion of sin into God's good world, then hell is unleashed. There's strife in the place of unity. There's hiding in the place of intimacy, striving in the place of contentment, where mutuality and self-giving love once flourished and defined relationships. Sin brought hierarchy and pride and eventually death itself. And I share this not to belittle the pain that we're feeling, but to highlight the fact that the pain that we do feel in this season, it's nothing new. It's, it's rifts along the great fault lines of division in the human soul. From the beginning, humanity's been caught up in the mire of sin and the hell that it unleashes in the world, 
And when we encounter Mark 9, in the context of the whole story of the Bible, what we see is, is a Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, dealing with both the potential of a community marked by love and self-sacrifice and what can be described as a community of agape in the Bible. He, he's, he's dealing with that potential. And he's also dealing with what unbridled sin can do in that same community. And so with that in mind, what if I told you that Jesus's words here, the, the, the passage that we just worked through, um, you know, about hacking off limbs and hell, what, what if I told you that these were words about peace? Would you scoff? Would you think that, okay, Kyle, you're just trying to circumvent, just like get around the uncomfortable stuff, right? Maybe. Or would you think, okay, that's in typical Kyle fashion. By now you may know seven on the Enneagram. So reframing is like a impulse. It's like breathing for me. So I feel the negative stuff and I try and make it positive. Well, maybe, maybe that's a part of it. But my guess is that the majority would say something like this. That's not how I read it. And I think this is a big deal, and here's why. In 1985, sociologist Robert Bulla uh, had this landmark work on America's social life called Habits of the Heart. And he introduced this framework, an observation, uh, so he's not making something up, but he's observing and then identifying this thing he calls expressive individualism, which essentially holds that each person, each of us has these this unique core of feelings and intuitions. And they should unfold. That is, they should unfold if individuality is to be realized. And this has had a great influence, expressive individualism, on how we see the world. It's kind of just tucked into our unconscious biases and how we live in this modern moment. In other words, you could say all of that this way. Self-expression is the truest freedom and self-suppression the greatest tyranny. In Mark 9, Jesus delivers an injunction to his followers, a warning to cut out and throw away any part of their life that runs the risk of derailing their allegiance to him. And in doing so, Jesus sets himself up as a tyrant for the individualist and a liberator for those who believe. And I imagine at this point, you don't really feel the peace of Jesus. You're maybe thinking that Henry Sweet was uh, lying when he said that these draw us near to the master. And once again, these words, they feel like oil to your water. You wonder how anybody could be drawn near to Jesus with words like these. Well, to see that that actually is the case here, let's work our way back through the passage going line by line. So starting in verse 42, this is what we read. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and now in, in other translations, that word sin there will be uh, fall away or stumble. So whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So first off, notice that there's a progression at work here. 
If you were to jump back to verse 36 in chapter 9, where we were last week, uh, you would notice that Jesus placed a child, a person who in the ancient Near East had no status. He placed this child in front of his disciples to remind them that the reality of the kingdom of God is one where the last is first and the first is last, where if you want to be great, be a servant of all. So Jesus places a child, most likely a small child like a toddler, in front of them for this. And then from there, Mark progresses in verse 37. And, and now what we see is that the disciples are called to receive one such child, a little bit more general. And then in verse 42, the start of our teaching text today, we see a term of endearment. One of these little ones, which is equated with one who believes. At this point, the child has become a metaphor for really any and all who are of low status and are vulnerable to harm. In Jesus' day, this would be women and children, or in the church today, this would be people who have just come to trust Jesus and are trying to figure out, to process through this journey of aligning their lives with King Jesus. In both cases, it would be better for one to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the sea than to cause somebody who's put their trust in Jesus to fall away. Tom Wright hits it on the head here when he says that these are harsh words for a harsh reality. See, altogether, what the sense that, that Jesus is giving us here is that he takes oppression, exploitation, and abuse of the vulnerable by the powerful very, very seriously. The reality that we are entering into here, these harsh words are meant to sober us up. And when I hear Jesus's words, I can't help but, but think about the Me Too movement of recent history that's still unfolding with like the Epstein scandal and, and the racial injustices that are unfolding before our eyes on the daily. And if that's where your mind goes as well when you hear a passage or a verse like this, then that is, it's a valid interpretation that we share. But it's not the historic interpretation. Remember, Jesus' warnings here, they are for followers in his community of peace. And so to that end, it's throughout church history, this has been a passage that has really stirred up the saints to be on guard against false teaching and the like. Teachers who would prey on the naive or the poor and, and like hucksters who would try and get money out of people in the name of Jesus, things like that. More recently, uh, this passage has, has called our attention to what some call spiritual abuse of the soul. This is the litany of celebrity pastors who are following or scandals in the church or the Boston Globe scandal that unveiled the abuses in the church. Any and all of those things are what this is talking about. And let me, let me just say this as a brief aside, but directly related. If you've experienced that, that abuse of the soul, by a leader who was standing in the place of the trust of Jesus, I, I am so sorry. And I commend you that you're entering back into a space where you have to be more vulnerable than others, guarded and yet present. I commend you that you're showing up and I hope that you 
you can encounter the love of Jesus here. Rest in respite for your heart and soul. I just want you to remember that he sees you, that he is for you, and that when we come to these next few verses, that reality has not shifted. In fact, it's, it's ever more present. And this is, this is what we read in verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better that you enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Now, Jesus is going to go on and he's going to talk about the cutting off of your feet that, that cause you to sin, the eye being cut away that causes you to sin. And in all of this, I can attest, it is so much easier to look outside of ourselves and, and find fault there, to point the finger at others and objectify those in power. And sometimes, sometimes it is necessary to look and see and notice and name and call evil what it is. That is the prophetic voice of the church, and we are called to bear witness to that. But here, Jesus is saying, watch out for yourself. And he doesn't stop there. I mean, notice how Mark continues this theme of stumbling. He does so with the word sin, and he picks it up multiple times. That when it comes to our life with Jesus, we must do whatever it takes to eradicate sin. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not talking about you being the one who's responsible to put sin to death. Jesus has been clear here. Two times he said he's going to the cross. He's going to Jerusalem. That those who want to follow him are to pick up their cross. There is, there is clear signaling from Jesus that he is here to deal with sin. He's been healing people, been forgiving them of their sin, been casting out demons. I mean, this is the kingdom of God unfolding. So when I say that we must take up the mantle of sin's eradication, it's not in place of Jesus. It's in partnership with Jesus that we must purge sin from our minds, our hearts, our imaginations, our whole life, and do so in participation with the living God. And when I say sin, I, I know that can be a confusing and even religious term, and you just start to put a whole bunch of stuff in there. When I say sin, I mean any failure to reflect the image of God in nature, attitude, or action. It's anything that causes you to stumble. Take an inventory right now. Like, like what is that? I, I probably didn't even have to ask that. There's that thing that you have left just lingering on the side, unsubmitted to, to Jesus's call to soul allegiance because you like that thing. And whatever it may be for you, that is what Jesus has in mind in this passage. My guess is that this thing, it's not some egregious sin, some, some sin that would, um, I don't know, be scandalized in our broader culture, but it's a sin that grieves the heart of God. It's, it's not a sin that is ranked in churchianity as like, oh, that, that's really not that bad. It's that tendency to tell a half-truth to make yourself seem better at another's expense. It's gossip. It's slander. And Jesus is saying here, all of it must go. 
And just recall, before you go to the kitchen, you get a knife, all that good stuff, Jesus is using hyperbole. This is flamboyant speech to get the seriousness of his point across. So do not cut off your hand or your foot or gouge out your eye because those have been vessels of sin in your life. Take them seriously and the things that they led you to, cut those things out. This is not a call to self-flagellation or self-deprecation. Jesus is making the point that the division and disorder unleashed back in Genesis 3, it lives in you and me. And no matter how painful the surgery, no matter how deep the rot, to dig it out, to cut it off now is worth it because it means life. There was a movie, gosh, back in the 2000s, and uh, a guy who's an outdoor enthusiast gets his arm cut between a rock face and a boulder. And the movie's a little trippy. He's like hallucinating, running out of food, water, etc. Eventually, uh, spoiler alert, he cuts his arm off because he could die and be physically intact or live, leave his arm there in the place of death and go with the potential of life. That's the imagery here that no matter how deep it is better to cut it out and off and live than suffer and die. See, Jesus is here to deal with our sin, and this is one of the ways he invites us to partner with him. Now, don't read too much into the, the hell language here that Jesus employs in this passage, and I'm not trying to explain it away. It's my job to explain the text but so often when this language of hell is employed, this is the oil and water moment for us. This is the moment where we say, uh, certainly I cannot draw near to Jesus. And what happens is imagery from Dante's Inferno and little red men with pointy tails and pitchforks come to our minds. And, and those are good cartoons and poetry, not good biblical theology. The word hell that Jesus uses is the word Gehenna, and it is a real place in Jesus' day. It's on the southwest corner of, of Jerusalem. And some historians, they make the case that in Jesus' day, this place was the city dump. And in this place, they would burn, there would be a fire burning 24-7 to consume the human waste from Jerusalem. You know, we don't really know if that's true or not and how much it plays into the imagery here in Mark. But what we do know for sure is that this site, Gehenna, which literally means the Valley of Hinnom, that this place is where King Josiah, who in 2 Chronicles is surveyed, you can go back and, and read about his life and the renewal movement that he experienced in, with the people of Israel. But this is where King Josiah put death, the practice of child sacrifice. Those who uh, were complicit in that and those who practiced it, put it into practice, the priests, Josiah ended it there. And what began to come into the collective conscience of the people of Israel is that this place, the Valley of Hinnom, is where God's judgment visited the atrocity of sin and idolatry. And by Jesus's day, Gehenna carried this symbolic weight as this place where God's judgment would once again come upon sin and idolatry. And the point of Jesus' language, graphic as it is, is to shock us. 
to confront us in our complicity with sin, to shock us out of compromised living and the indulgent sin so that we might live into the way of Jesus, free from sin. And it actually leads us into these last words of Jesus. And we, we, we pick this up here. Check this out. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So the language here is both the language of preparation. It's how priests would prepare a sacrifice to be a pleasing aroma to God. Everyone will be salted with fire. But it's also the language of preservation. See, salt here is not a uniform metaphor that is like a cookie cutter. You can just put it here and then you get the piece that you want over here. It's, it's dynamic because it's the language of preparation and the language of preservation. And what's interesting for Jesus is the path of preservation. This language of calling salt good is something that sustains and makes, I mean, think about it, there's no refrigerators. So how are they gonna sustain the things of life like food, salt? It's the path of preservation. Having salt in yourselves is the path of peace. And I don't think that this is peace keeping. I think that would be the false salt. I think this is peace making. And here's what I mean. The Dead Sea, which would be at the, the southern part of Israel, would be where the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River spilled into. There's no outlet there. The salt content is high and there's then mineral deposits all around this, the Dead Sea. And now some of those mineral deposits would lose their saltiness. <laughs> the salt content would leach out and it would just be a lime deposit. But you would go to use it and it wouldn't have the preserving qualities that you need. And I think that that's like this peacekeeping because peacekeeping is about sustaining the status quo, about allowing whatever semblance of peace you have now to stay intact, whereas peacemaking has a different moving. It has a different movement to it. See, peacemakers, they move toward unrest. Peacemakers, they move into the fray. Peacemakers look for the war-torn area because that is the way of Jesus. Jesus is here to deal with sin and to get the hell out of us. And for an apprentice, for a follower of Jesus, and it's not a matter of whiff, not a matter of if, but when and how we will deal with sin. Will we grow comfortable and complicit and try and just keep things intact? Just rationalizing our sin away, saying, okay, it's not as bad as that guy or that lady over there. Or will we heed Jesus's words and ruthlessly eliminate the things in our life that derail our allegiance to Jesus? As I said earlier in talking about Bella's work, the habits of the heart, that self-expression is the truest freedom, that is a lie. That is a lie that elevates our position, our status over and against others at their expense. There's a shift in the American culture that's uh, moving into, back into <laughs> an honor-shame context. And we see this in the I think in its clearest form in social media, and I think of Instagram. 
It's this space of limited good where if you're going to be elevated, then it often comes at the cost of someone else. How is that true freedom? Well, you expressed yourself. See, Jesus is actually calling us to suppress ourselves and more so to cut away the dead parts of our hearts. We have believed the lie that hard-heartedness is living. That our hearts can still beat even though they have a tough and calloused exterior. And Jesus is saying that weakness is the new strength. That cutting away the death is actually the way to life. And Jesus does this beautiful thing of holding intention, suffering and joy of death and life. And he moves toward that space. The intersection of those realities is the cross. That's why Paul, somebody who was against Jesus and then encountered Jesus and then was for Jesus, he said this of Jesus. For our sake, he, that is the Father, made Jesus to be sin. That is to be consumed by all that sin had to offer so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we, we actually stand with Jesus now because sin did its best. And Jesus died to the results of sin. Sin can only bring death. Jesus on the cross died to death so that as we stand with Jesus, we stand in victory over sin and death. And now we partner with him in the glory of the gospel in true allegiance by putting any remnant of sin to death in our lives. So if there is slander in your speech toward people that you disagree with, cut it out. Just because you're angry about a moment doesn't mean that you need to tweet about it or say anything. Bring those things to God. Bring your anger to him. Bring your frustration to him. If you're angry about the injustices to people with black bodies that are happening in our world right now, then yes, raise a cry. But don't do it where you're cutting other people down. Go and stand next to your brothers and sisters in solidarity and say, I see you. I don't know what to say, but I'm present. The eradication of sin in our lives, church, is not just from our minds not just from our hearts, not just from our imaginations. I think we need to hear Jesus clearly here that it is about our bodies. And I wish that Jesus would have identified our mouth as a piece here, <laughs> that he would have talked about like cutting out the tongue or something. That would have been so much easier to preach. But I'm grateful he didn't. See, see, I don't think we need to symbolize the things that Jesus is inviting us to cut away. I think we need to identify the areas of our hearts and lives that lead us into patterns of sin. And so what I'm gonna do right now is I'm actually, I'm just gonna pray that the spirit of the living God, the, the Jesus who leads us into liberation through death and into life, that he would search our hearts. You know, last week I, I asked that we do this, that we keep our eyes on Jesus and ask the spirit of the living God to search our hearts, to seek out the pride. Perhaps those are the things you need. We just need to do that afresh. So let me, let me just pray for us, church. And as I pray, if the spirit brings something to mind, don't dismiss it. Be it small 
and seemingly insignificant, it matters to your life with Jesus. Because the end is peace. How can we be a people of peace? How can we be people who preserve life around us if we are defined more by sin than liberation from sin? Let us pray. Jesus, you have strong words for us. Harsh words for a harsh reality. It's not just the sin from without, it's the sin within. It's not just the stumbling that we cause in other people, it's the stumbling that we yield to in our own lives that is not aligned with you. And I would just ask right now, Spirit, that you would search our hearts, that with our eyes fixed on Jesus, with no shame, no condemnation, that you would search our hearts and that we would be found out by you fully exposed and fully loved, and that we would yield to you and your movement in our lives, that we would resolve in our hearts and in our bodies to put those deeds of the flesh to death, that if we really have entered into the waters of baptism that say we are dead and now alive with Christ, we would live as though that is true. So Spirit, search us and lead us gently. Make us a people of peace who are ourselves seasoned with salt. Come, Lord Jesus, do your work in and through us. Amen. Amen.